Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. As we open your word, Lord, uh, my prayer is that you would find us obedient and responsive to it. Uh, People who don't just look into it, but people who have it look into us as we seek to follow Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I didn't mention our Sunday morning recurring wardrobe kerfuffle today, um, but... um, You'll note that uh, once again, Pastor Laura has made me dress in attire that is slightly more flamboyant than I am. And I think it was so that we would match today. But um, anyway, and uh, I know you're all envious of my wardrobe, and I'm happy to share with you where I get my purchases after the service. On your way in this morning, you should have been given a, or picked up a communion cup We're going to share communion later. If you didn't get one, we'll make sure that you get one. If you're watching from home, watching the streaming on Facebook or through our website, then uh, you'll need to sneak out and get one, uh, some juice and some bread. And of course, the sermon is the perfect time to go ahead and do that. (laughs) I suspect there are a variety of jobs and former jobs represented in this room today. Here's a bit of the the things that are on my resume. My very first job was I was a paper boy, and then I graduated to camp counselor. I worked in a retail establishment for a while until it went bankrupt, was not my fault. Um, I was a factory worker for a while, assembling little electronic components, which was way fun, I gotta tell you. I played in a party band for a while when I was in college. Of course, I was in the military, I was in the Air Force, I have and I still serve as a seminary and college professor for various schools. Um, um, I I, I serve this congregation, pastoring partnership with my lovely wife. Um, So those are the kind of things that are on my uh, resume, the kinds of jobs that I've had in the past. And of course, Labor Day is a time when we think about our jobs because, hey, on Monday, we're supposed to get a day off from our jobs. But I wonder really, I really, really wonder if As Christians, we have figured out what job one is. When we put all our vocational stuff aside and all our educational stuff aside, we put all our hobby stuff aside, I wonder if we've really, really figured out what job one is. Back in the 17th century, uh, a gang of guys in uh, England got together and wrote what we know today as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's a catechism, really. And a catechism is a series of questions and responses. Here's the very first question in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of humanity? The answer, the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So that really gets at this notion of what job one for us really is. And job one for us, folks, no secret today, job one is worshiping. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's job number one for people who have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I've been doing this pastoring gig for a little while um, in various places, and I've picked up on the fact that there are, I think, think about four basic categories of approaches to that job number one, which is worship. Here they are. Ready? The first approach is, meh. I don't really care. I can't really be bothered. I'll I'll fit it in if it's convenient, if I have nothing else to do. But I'm going to look really hard for something else to do so I don't have to go to worship. 
That's kind of approach number one. Approach number two is kind of crawling to the oasis. We've had a really difficult week and it's been beat up left and right and we're crawling towards the oasis of Sunday morning worship. We sit down in the pews and though worship should have some oasis-like characteristics, the rest of our work week, our life week, shouldn't be a desert void of worship. That's number two. Number three is, and this depends on your era, um, back when... um, Certain people in this room were younger than they are now. They would remember um, Siskel and Ebert, the movie critics, right? And their approach to evaluating movies was thumbs up or thumbs down. Now, of course, in the age of the Internet, we have rotten tomatoes to tell us what everybody on the planet thinks about a particular movie. And so this is kind of the third approach, right? We go to see what kind of show is being put on this week. How good is it going to be? But then there's the last approach, and this was captured best for me by the author Tony Campolo. He's an author and pastor, and he wrote a book, and this is the title of the book, The Kingdom of God is a Party. Now, if you're looking for a good book to read about worship, I recommend that one. And his idea is summed up in the title that people who have faith in Jesus shouldn't be this collection of sourpuss, grumpy taking um, curmudgeonliness to its extreme kind of drag our butts through the weak kind of people. That's not what the kingdom of God's supposed to be. That's not what worship is supposed to be. The kingdom of God is supposed to be a party. And what that means is that if we've been engaged in, 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 in interacting with God all week and doing what I call God stuff all week long, God's people, because we've been refreshed along the way by that journey with the Father, Son, and Spirit through the week, then we come together in corporate worship. And of all those, of course, the last one is the biblical model. And Jesus gets at the heart of this job, number one, this job of worship, in those verses that we heard read as part of the incredibly rich conversation that Jesus had with that Samaritan woman at the well. So we're going to listen in this Labor Day weekend as Jesus gives us the essence of job number one, which is worship. You and I as Christians, we are called to worship God in spirit and in truth. John John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, the words will be up on the screen. If you're watching on the website, it's just to the right of the picture. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, say this. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So this passage is so rich. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago, we talked about this passage in a series we had called Conversations with Jesus, but we didn't really camp on this notion of worship. So in the middle of this really deep discussion with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus talks about water, physical and spiritual, and Jesus talks about this woman's own private life, and, and he knows all about her secrets. Uh, she changes the subject. She changes the subject to religion. And she starts talking about the appropriate venue for worship. And she says, you know, my Samaritan folks and I, my buddies and my Samaritan buddies, we worship here on this mountain called Gerizim. But you Jewish people, you say we have to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus takes that question of location and he redirects it. And he goes after this issue of motivation. He says it's not really 
location that matters. Worship was and is an issue of the heart and mind. It's not an issue of geography. Jesus said true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says the Father is seeking those kind of worshipers to worship him. Spirit and truth. Those are good kind of churchy kind of buzzwords, right? Spirit and truth. Well, what do they really mean? It's simple. It's not simplistic, but it's simple. Spirit, we engage at the supernatural and relational and experiential level with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Truth, we engage with our minds at the cognitive and knowledge level about Jesus. And of course, we've said before, right, that the Bible words for knowledge to know, they always have an action component. We acquire information to act on that information. Spirit and in truth. And there's two essential truths that we'll just hold on to these for this morning. The first one is, here are a couple of essential truths. God loves us. God loves you. You may not have anybody in your life that thinks you're lovable. But know this for sure, God loves you. Second truth, we must be born again. Earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, He is the truth. So engaging in worship and truth means engaging Jesus. Now I'm going to share with you several ideas this morning, and some of these I've picked up along the way from various places, and I'd love to give all those people credit, but frankly, I don't remember who they are. So whoever you are out there, thanks. The first thing I want to do is unpack some common misconceptions, misconceptions about worship. And there's five of them, so strap in. Misconception number one, worship always takes place in a church building. I went on a retreat with elders from a church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and we were out for a weekend, and I can remember sitting on this rock in the middle of this beautiful countryside with my Bible open, and I was worshiping God in the middle of nowhere with my Bible open, listening, reading, trying to understand who God would have me be and what he would call me to do. So worship isn't confined to this room. And boy, have we not had that reinforced for us over the last few months, right? We've realized that that worship can happen in a variety of different places. The corporate event of worship is, is the cornerstone, but it's not the only stone. You see, our worship that we do together has to be informed by daily being in God's presence. Psalm 119, verse 164 Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. So, unless we worship God every day, somehow, some way, when we come together on Sundays, the best we can do is kind of catch our breath spiritually. The truth is that corporate worship, what we do together, is enhanced or hindered by our personal, private worship. That's conception number one. Number two, worship can consistently take place without being with the body of Christ in worship. Now, I used to live in Colorado, and we still go back there to visit kids and grandkids. Well, mostly the grandkids. We have to visit the kids because they have the grandkids with them. But, so I, I love the beauty of that place, and I can remember having more than one conversation with somebody uh, uh, with whom I was engaged in conversation, trying to inquire about their you know, 
connection with Jesus and their worship habits. And I more than one time I heard this phrase, something like this. I can worship God in the splendor of his creation. Well, that's true. But I'd usually have a follow-up question. I'd say, do you? Uh, mm, well, mm, not really. There's a reason the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10 that we should consider how we may spur one another on toward good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. And here's something I've noticed during this pandemic. I've noticed that the pandemic has been in many ways draining for us, right? Physically and relationally and all that kind of stuff. But it's been draining for so many Christians because we have wanted to be together. And even when we've gotten together, we've had these restrictions, right? You all are wearing your masks. I have my mask here. And it just feels different and weird. What is going on there? It's God's spirit in us drawing us together to enjoy him in a corporate fashion. Misconception number three. Worship is about how I like to do it. Our personal preferences. Me. You know, people express worship to God in different ways, and some of those ways may not resonate with you. Some people sit quietly with their bowed heads, and some people shout amen or hallelujah. Doesn't happen here very often. Some people lift their hands. Some sing strongly. And the Bible, here it is, the Bible commends all of those expressions of worship and many, many more. We're all different. We all resonate in worship differently. But one thing is certain, we cannot be worshiping if we're critiquing somebody else's worship style or preferences. Criticism is not a spiritual gift. And most of the time, most of the time, all those differences over worship style, music, architecture, aesthetics, they're usually all about personal preferences. As I mentioned just a moment ago, and several times probably over the last few months, you know, I've been doing this pastor thing for a long time now, and I can tell you a phrase that I have consistently heard over and over and over and over and over again in every church setting that I've been in. The phrase is this, I don't like that. And whatever the that is, is particular to that person's preferences. I didn't like that song. I didn't like that reading. I didn't like that sermon. I've heard that a lot. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like how, you know, I've, I've, I've heard that phrase so many times that quite frankly, it ticks me off. And when I get angry about it, it is not righteous anger. Here's God's plan. You ready? God's plan is that we care so much about our brothers and sisters in Christ that we actively campaign for their preferences. Do you hear it? Church in Colorado, we introduced a contemporary worship band, and uh, I can see the eye rolling and the panicking right now. Just stand by. Don't worry. We did, and we introduced it. And, uh, and at first, it was this... Um, this uh, Lack of resonance with the style. I mean, we could see it. We could feel it on Sunday mornings. But then we had this conversation about, hey, you know what? Somebody in this room really likes that song we're singing. You might not like that song, but somebody in this room likes that song. So why don't you embrace that song as an affirmation of your sister and brother in Christ? Salisbury Cathedral is in, well, Salisbury in England. I love that place. It's a beautiful building. It has the tallest uh, church spire in the United Kingdom. 
I visited there several times. Um, it's the second tallest spire in Europe. It's absolutely beautiful. In fact, I like it so much that I acquired a print of the Salisbury Cathedral, a painting, a print, not a painting, but a print of a painting that we have on our wall. You know it's a print of a painting when the print costs way less than the framing for the print? So we have it on our living room wall. And one of the times I was there, I was on tour, and I was on, happened to be on tour on kind of a late Saturday afternoon, and, and uh, there was an usher kind of person um, putting out about 30 folding chairs. I said, what's, what's the deal with the folding chairs? Because I'm a Yank and I can ask obnoxious questions of people in England. And the guy said, well, that's about the number of people who show up for worship on Sunday mornings. This magnificent place of worship. Misconception number four, the people up front are the focus. Right? You've heard the story of the boy who was in the backseat of the car. His mom and dad were driving home from church, and they complained about everything. They complained about the selection of songs. They complained about the boring sermon from the pastor. But remembering the offering experience, the boy said to dad, Hey, dad, you have to admit it was a pretty good show for a dollar. <laughs> you know, we often judge church based on how well the upfronters do. Was the music good? And the music here is always great. Were the singers on pitch? Yes, he was. Were there any technical glitches? Was the pastor's message interesting? Listen, that's not worship. That's color commentary. Gene and I were sharing our baseball travails before the service today. He was talking about the Kansas City Royals, who stink this year. And I was talking about the Boston Red Sox, who stink this year. And we were sharing how close to the bottom of their rankings and their divisions could they get, only to discover that in each division, they're both at the bottom. But you know, that's color commentary. I'm not suiting up every day playing baseball. I'm not getting in there and mixing it up in the dirt. I'm looking in from the outside saying, you know, I don't like that show very much. God deserves our best. And whether you believe it or not, we always try to do things with excellence, but nobody, nobody, nobody up here bats a thousand every time. And ultimately, really, it's not about our excellence. It's about God's presence and our response to him. Misconception number five, the people in the pews are the audience. You are not the audience. God is the audience. All of us are on the platform. We all play a part in adoring Father, Son, and Spirit. We saw the musical Hamilton recently. We signed up for Disney Plus for you know, the 30-day free trial just so we could see Hamilton. And if you haven't seen it, see it. It's, it's a great, great show. Got some history packed into it anyway. But in a play, in a musical like Hamilton, Pastor Laura, Laura likes the dancers. In a musical like, the, like Hamilton, you have actors and you have prompters and you have a director. And, and the director guides the actors, the prompters whisper lines if they happen to forget their line. But in worship, you see, the people who lead worship were supposed to be the prompters. You're supposed to be the actors. God is the audience. Not you. Not me. So... I think that gets us to a place where we can understand a few lessons about worship. And here they are. Worship is always active and never passive. 
Worship is not a spiritual warm fuzzy on Sunday morning. It's God's people actively responding to him, right? Jesus said in John chapter 4, true worshipers will worship. Genesis chapter 35, worship caused Jacob and his family to put away their idols. Exodus chapter 24, the people of Israel heard the word of God and worshiped and committed themselves to obedience. Nehemiah chapter 8, when the scribe reads the word before the people, verse 6 says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Worship is not a spectator sport. It's not done to us or for us, but by us. I think it was last year when Big Bad Voodoo Daddy came to the Grenada Theater. Was it last year? That was a great concert. And I'm here sitting, seated in the back row, and I, so I could you know, watch people and critique them. Nope, that's not why we were sitting back there. Those were our tickets. But it was a great song, a concert. I don't know if that kind of music resonates with you, but we liked it a lot, that swing band, jive kind of feel. Um, what was interesting to me to watch was how people in the audience kind of got drawn into it. And before you know it, there's these 95-year-old couples dancing in the aisles and people swaying and clapping and raising their hands. And I'm thinking, yeah, what's church look like on Sunday morning? And I know many of you have grandchildren and great-grandchildren and children who are getting married or graduating, whatever. And whenever you are in the middle of that stuff, you can see it even through the mask. You can see the excitement, you know, travel across people's faces as they're sharing those stories about their wonderful children. By the way, our grandson Cooper, uh, his team came in first place in their tournament last weekend. He got a ring the size of the state of Texas. I mean, he showed it to us in a picture, and that thing like, I don't know why he's not walking around with his hand dragging on the ground, that thing's so big. And you knew, right, I was gonna tell you that story. Because I get excited when my kids and grandkids do something exciting. Just like you do. Just like you do. So, don't tell me that it's not in you to get active and excited. Because I know better. I know better. The second thing is that worship is the central activity of the church. Week by week by week, we do some important things around here. But the most important thing a church family does is worship. From the beginning days of the church era until now, God's people have been a worshiping people. Book of Acts chapter 2. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Third thing is, worship is the source of spiritual renewal, or at least it's supposed to be. Worship charges our spiritual batteries. Now, uh, Pastor Laura and I have been working really hard over the last several months to shed some poundage. And we've been doing better with uh, eating less and eating better food, eating more nutritiously, exercising um, on a regular basis. But our diet did not reduce to eating once a week on Sunday. But somehow we think our worship diet is okay if we worship once a week on Sunday. 
we view it as kind of a racing pit stop. Gas up. You know, have you ever seen a racing car? You know, what's that guy's name? Clint Boyer, is that the guy in town? Who's a racer? Pit stop, they pull in, they zip fast, they change the gas up, they change the tires, back on the road as soon as they can. That's not worship. Man, that's just stopping by. Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. When you and I have been with Jesus, people notice that. Now, I know I've shared this story with you before, but I'll share it again because, hey, you've probably forgotten it. 1999, game four of the division series, the Red Sox were playing the Cleveland Indians. In that game, the Red Sox scored, up until that point in time, the most runs ever in a postseason game. The final score, 23-7. to seven. Here's what I remember from that game. The cameras are sweeping the stands at Fenway, and literally everybody's up on their feet, they're tossing their beer cups at their friends, they're just cheering and going crazy. 23-7, to seven, that's a pretty good day in baseball. But as the camera was panning, the left field stands, suddenly you could see the cameraman went, because there was a guy who was asleep. So the camera goes by him, but the cameraman couldn't resist. He kept coming back. Everybody around this guy is going stark raving mad in celebration of his victory, and there's this guy who is asleep. Man. Sometimes that's me and worship, right? People around me are invested in what's going on with God and celebrating that, and I am asleep. He got to go to the game, but he didn't participate in the celebration. We get to go to worship. Yeah, it is job one, but man, what a privilege. I brought with me some important stuff today. I don't know if you remember back to the beginning of the pandemic, the toilet paper shortage that was advertised, right? So people were suddenly stocking up on toilet paper. There was some guy, I saw a picture somewhere on social media, he had his garage, garage full. He opened the garage door, it was full of toilet paper. Sometime around the year 2192, they're going to run out of their last roll of toilet paper. And i got to confess, we kind of get caught up in it a little bit too. And um, so to the point now where it's a habit. If I'm in a store and I see toilet paper, I buy it. It's like Pavlov's toilet dog or something, you know. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. As much as toilet paper is in demand and regularly used several times a day, shouldn't worship be in more demand and engaged in several times a day? Now, I picked this particular way to show you this idea because I know each and every one of you is going to regularly engage in using this. 
Uh, it's crass and crude. And my co-pastor partner wife over here is dying from embarrassment right now because it's a really bad day for her. Because apparently the shirt and the toilet paper combination, that's just not a good thing. But, but, you hear it, right? Job number one is to worship. And let's be at least as enthusiastic about connecting with worship as we were about finding toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic. Pray with me. Father,